Thank you. Thanks, Jacqueline. Thanks to all of you. Um, so just for those of you that don't know me, my name's Mira. I'm, um, I'm sort of a frontline academic. I work and teach in the international relations programs in uh, the SOAS politics department. And I've sort of got sucked into the whole decolonizing the curriculum thing a little bit reactively um, when the students started doing activism around it and um, they started wanting to sort of flesh out what their slogans would mean and with a bit of background in post-colonial, decolonial approaches to the research that I was doing I sort of got involved and that's how I came into this. Uh, so in terms of what I want to talk about today, um, I'll just give you a quick outline. So first I want to talk a little bit about what I think the problem is or how I think a decolonizing vision of education fits into the higher education landscape. Uh, then I want to look a little bit at why the curriculum matters um, and I actually one of the things that I will be saying is that the curriculum matters but not as much as some of the other stuff so it has a role but it's definitely not the be all and end all. Um, some of the criticisms and the reflections obviously you've heard some of the uh, critical responses in the, in the radio clip earlier but there are some other criticisms out there that I thought it might be helpful to work through. And finally, just some reflections from institutional practice and engagement. Um, but in the middle of the session, we'll kind of maybe pause and have uh, a few chats about things. Also, I think uh, one of the things we'll do is you'll have a chance to have a look at our decolonizing learning and teaching toolkit, which we developed at SOAS, um, which is basically an attempt in 20 odd pages to get from zero to this is what decolonizing the curriculum might mean in terms of teaching and in terms of curriculum. So decolonizing learning and teaching. So that's also available on our website if that's something you want to uh, use. Okay, so what is the problem? Um, so I'll try and zoom out and I'm sure many of you will be familiar with these debates. Um, when we think about what the ethos of education is, we don't start from a single idea. We've actually got at least four models of education, I would say, that are active in the UK at the moment. So the first one I would call a conservative vision of education. That means that the role of education is to reproduce societal knowledge and values in future generations. So ed education plays this role of kind of preserving or conserving uh, society in its current form. So that's one vision. We have a neoliberal vision, and that means that education is about creating the skills required for the knowledge economy and training workers, and it's all about employability and graduate destinations and so on and so forth. And that sees education increasingly allied to the needs and the ideas of industry. Oh, that's come up in the wrong order. Um, so <laughs> the third one which I wanted to mention was the liberal vision. Uh, which is the idea that what a university is for, what education is for, is creating a free space for debate, discussion and contestation. And the fourth model, I would probably call a sort of critical model, which sees education as a tool for liberation, humanisation, structural transformation of some kinds. Now, one of the things that we deal with when we start to talk about racial equality in the curriculum is that we're actually looking at the contestation within and between these ideas of education as well. So all of this work is kind of operating in this space. So even though I would say that it's the critical version which uh, animates the decolonizing project most closely, we find ourselves often in odd alliances with a sort of neoliberal version, sometimes even a conservative one, uh, and often, often a liberal one. But it's when we hear contestation around decolonization that we've got to be aware that sometimes people are coming at the idea of education from different purposes. 
What I want to do is investigate a little bit some more the liberal vision of the university and the assumptions that underpin it, because I think this is probably the dominant idea of what education means, at least in the British public sphere, uh, for argument's sake. I mean, we can talk about whether that's still true. Um, and this is the idea that university is actually a space outside society. It's distinct from society, and it's a space in which uh, inquiry research is protected. And that means that it's the space for the free exchange of ideas. So this is the idea of the ivory tower as a kind of a positive thing, a safe space, a protected space for debate. Now that's okay because the competitive character of modern science and philosophy means that the best ideas win. Okay, So that's what we're dealing with when we talk about uh, science in a liberal model. And because these are just ideas and they're tested out and they're tested out rigorously, ideas are therefore relatively independent of the embodiment of the thinker, right? So the ones that win are just winning on their own merits. That's what they're saying. And this means, uh, subsequently, that academic space is therefore governed by meritocracy, right? And then this means that access to education is about getting in, right? So once you've gotten into this liberal, free space, you're basically in the meritocratic environment. Now, of course, all of us probably know that there are lots of problems with this, but it's worth working them out because I think all of these problems are ways in which coloniality, racism, uh, and those structures that we've talked about, class, gender, and so on, get played out in the university. All right, so first problem is our first assumption is wrong, right? Universities are embedded within societies and they reflect their power structures. Um, and this actually influences and it limits the circulation of ideas, right? So there is a relationship between power and knowledge in society and that relationship between power and knowledge continues within universities. So even if universities might be in some senses competitive spaces, to some extent that competition is limited to ideas which correspond with the dominant view. So in my field, political science or international relations, you might have a debate between, let's say, realist and liberal accounts of international order, but both of them basically are consonant with policymakers' understandings and they reflect a fairly narrow band of inquiry. But this means that that hegemony is sort of reinforced. It's also not the case that ideas are independent of the lived experiences of the people that generate them, okay? And so... This means that a limitation on the people who are in university uh, means a limitation on the ideas that are in university. So even when we are evaluating merit, we are evaluating that through specific values and to a certain extent within correspondence to specific ideas. And these exclusions are structural, both within higher education and uh, society. I'd be happy to share these slides with you, of course, um, afterwards. So what does this mean as far as racism in education is concerned? Um, we're thinking about the ways in which the racisms of society get reproduced in the classroom. So these are just some of the ways in which I think these play out amongst our student body and inside our institutions. One thing is that I think we have lower academic expectations of non-white racialized students that have to do with the ways in which non-white people have been represented in society, to do with forms of anti-blackness, Islamophobia and so on. Now, what does lower academic expectations mean in an education environment? It may mean at least two things. One, less detailed or less challenging feedback, right? We may not expect as much of students. We may push them less hard. Uh, and also, we may stereotype students' interests or needs. 
Uh, and that might mean something like turning to uh, a, a student of South Asian origin and say, what is this like in India, right? And if that's the consistent interaction we get with them, then that's a way in which we're sort of putting stereotypes onto them. What are the other effects? For a lot of students, it's their sense of belonging or welcome in a space that is marked by racialized uh, differences. Now, that's in part because of how universities look and how they um, represent themselves, but it's also because the experience of being racialized is to live with a kind of group stereotype or stigma. And that means that there are high stakes in your dynamics of shame or humiliation or vulnerability. So if you put yourself out there in a classroom setting and you get the answer wrong or you say something which is controversial, you're not just failing as an individual, but you're failing with the sort of stigma of your group attached to you. So that can make uh, some students who have experienced racism in their lives less likely to be vulnerable or confident, or what's called confidence in those spaces. And then compounded with that, students often lack the access to support that takes the issue seriously. How do you even start that conversation with your tutor who may or may not have experienced racism in their lives when there isn't really a language for talking about that sort of thing, uh, or if someone makes a comment which you think has belittled you but somebody else thinks is not serious, how do you even have that conversation as a student? So most likely you might withdraw, you might shut down a bit. <coughs> Beyond that there is the sort of hidden curriculum, the things that you may or may not know to do, and this is a big issue to do with class as well. Uh, who do you approach? Where do you look for knowledge? How do you conduct yourself such that you will be appreciated? in a university environment. I have to say my own uh, educational upbringing was very privileged. Right? I went to private school, I went to Oxford, and I have benefited greatly from learning how to navigate those spaces in my later academic career. The thing that we're going to talk about with regard to the curriculum is about an alienation from your assumed epistemological starting point. Right? So in a lot of subjects we teach, we assume that the starting point that people have is maybe from in social sciences or humanities, a wish to be an expert in X or Y, or a wish to look at the world through this lens. And that may or may not hold true, particularly if you've got a heritage which makes that lens problematic from the outset. And within this, a lot of the epistemologies at university will lead to some kinds of stereotyping of group characteristics. I've just put an asterisk by that. Um, we can put a pin in it. So in terms of what I'm thinking about how we transform an institution, it's starting with these experiences of racism for that a lot of BMA, BME students report, a lot of them experience. Not all of them, not all the time, but these are patterns that we see. Now I'm just going to be focusing in this talk on the sort of epistemological starting points, um, but a lot of the work we're doing at SOAS is about inclusive pedagogy, anti-racist teaching, trying to think about how to empower students or make the classroom more equalising in terms of the dynamics. Um, and we can talk about that as well. But when I talk about decolonising education, what I mean overall is this transformat transformative democratising practice that responds, and responds to and seeks to overcome these colonial limits in terms of production. How is this different to what we might call diversity? I summarise it crudely 
by saying that diversity policies are often limited to tackling issues of representation, that's whose <coughs> bodies are in the room. But decolonisation is actually tries to go into that mindset that produces the need for diversity <coughs> policies, right? How did we get here? What is the unpicking work that we need to do? Um, are there any questions at, at this stage about this? No? All right, I'll plough on. Um, okay, so then we get to the curriculum. Why does the curriculum matter? And again, I'm just kind of breaking it down. This will be stuff that is known to you. Um, but it matters, it has quite an influential role in structuring how we think about university. So the first one is because it identifies and it prioritises what the core concerns of a field should be, right? In terms of a literature field, a history field, geography and so on. It says, this is what we mean when we talk about this. Second, of course, it elaborates what concepts, approaches and methods should be used. Okay, we will study this through this form of analysis. We will apply this method to looking at uh, a medical problem. It will relate the history of the field. That says it will locate the study of sociology or anthropology in a particular kind of way. <coughs> it will produce a canon, right? That is to say, it will establish whose ideas have been most important or influential and, and who are the authoritative kind of roster of knowers of this particular thing. Who are the philosophers? Who are the historians? Who are the scientists? And then it will shape and set up key questions for future research and inquiry. So if you are going to be a sociologist, your research will look like this, right? You will ask these kinds of questions, you will come to these kinds of uh, conclusions. Now, it has all of those roles in terms of defining what we study. What are the effects of that in terms of our understanding of fields? Of course, it produces common sense. So when people who are united by a field show up and talk to each other at conferences, that is what they're structured by. That is how their conversations are organised. Now, within this common sense, you say these particular research questions are legitimate. Okay? You're allowed to ask this kind of question. You're not supposed to ask this kind of question. Or if you do ask that kind of question, we'll raise our eyebrows and look at you funny. Uh -huh. It will define debate and contestation over the ideas. Right? And then it will produce a sort of hierarchy of relevance. So if you are looking at counter-terrorism strategy, that is a very important thing in world politics, but if you are looking at marine pollution, that is not a very important thing, right? You're producing a hierarchy of what matters. It will produce a representation of the field, so that is an embodied kind of structured organisation of people that look a certain way and are from a certain set of origins. And I think, and this is dif most difficult for academics to sometimes get their head around, it will produce what I would call a disciplinary subjectivity, right? What does it mean to think like an anthropologist? What does it mean to think like a chemist? What does it mean to think like an archaeologist? So you've got all of this work going on within the academy that produces the field, it produces how students engage with it. But as we've seen, this work also already reproduces those structures of power in society. So when we talk about the curriculum, I'm thinking about two different key areas that we can examine when we're look, looking at decolonizing. So first, what ideas, debates, traditions, perspectives, vocabularies are considered core, right? What do you put right in the middle? What do you put right at the center? And second, who are the authoritative knowers, thinkers, and role models in the syllabus? And who are what is missing? So I'm just, um, 
I want to emphasize that these two things are linked, but they are separate, right? And so this is where you get the John Humphreys. Are you saying that black students can only look at black professors or can only relate to their ideas? No, obviously not. But it's because in a lot of the debates, there's been a conflation between the representation aspect, like who are the role models and the authorities, and the ideas aspect, what do they say? So sometimes when we talk about this, I call it the Condoleezza Rice problem. Um, so you have a woman of colour who is associated with a particular heritage, um, who is nonetheless completely in step with a particular view of the world defined by neoconservative American foreign policy, even though she herself is an academic and all the rest of it. So you don't necessarily have to say a diversity of one means a diversity of the other and vice versa. Okay, so I will give you an example of my field and how I think this kind of works and then we will um, maybe go into groups and look at the toolkit and you can have a talk discussion about your own fields. Uh, so in my field, which is international relations, um, to tell a very crude kind of story about it, it's an Anglo-American discipline as most disciplines are emerging in the late 19th, early 20th century. Or This also has heritage in uh, the German organisation of the academy where you split up subjects and you put them into different disciplines. Now, it's a field which defines the problem of world order, what we might think of as generally how people relate to each other, through Western security imperatives, right? So, after 1945, the big issue for the field was not decolonization, it was the Cold War. Even though most of the people in most of the world, decolonization was a big issue. And this means that as a conversation, it's largely taken place through journals and intellectuals based in Washington and London and Paris and Harvard and Oxford and Aberystwyth and all those other kinds of places, but it's been a peculiarly Anglo-American um, conversation. One of the things it does conceptually is say, oh well, this is what a model of a state looks like, and we're talking about Western states, and we're talking about them in this period, and those are real states, okay, so those are the models that we have, and we're going to look at their behaviour, and then if other states don't comply with that behaviour, then there's something odd about them, maybe they're failed states or something like that. Except that it also then erases the role of colonial and imperial power in producing those states in the first place, right? So you have a story about the great powers in the 19th century and the balance of power, which never talks about the fact that they were empires, which is weird. Um, and, of course, the corollary to that is it also ignores non-Western scholars and thought about the world, even in those periods, right? Alongside your sort of Woodrow Wilsons and John Hobsons, you also had Indian intellectuals writing about imperialism. You had Chinese intellectuals writing about imperialism. You've got other people who are there, but they're just not in the, in the canon. Okay, so what would it mean to decolonize or try to decolonize a field like this? Um, it's just a few suggestions, and there'll be a few more in the um, toolkit. So one of the things is just to make that imperialism and that coloniali coloniality visible, right? talk about the purposes and the objectives of the discipline, like locate that in its real history. And then you can critically examine the theories that are produced and the histories that are told in light of this understanding, in light of this historical context. And actually that's quite a big thing because once you start to see that the field hasn't sprung out of nowhere as a sort of scientific approach to the world, you can start to challenge its assumptions. However, you need a much broader understanding of the historical record of what the transnational social relations were at this time, um, and that goes well beyond looking at the Napoleonic Wars and World War I and so on, but you need you know, to really think about 
what the hell the Chinese Revolution meant for people all around the world in the 20th century. What on earth did uh, Cuba's export of communism mean? Right? We never talk about those things, even though they had consequential effects. <clears throat> and that actually creates space for alternative debates, alternative concepts and values and so on. And of course, we must insist on, as you'd expect, uh, pluralizing and globalizing representation and content within teaching of the field, right? It's no longer enough to just say only people in this part of the world have thought about and talked about world order, but we are actively going to say, how did Africans understand the role of empire in the shaping of Africa, right? How, how did people approach that problem? And so you're not just tokenizing it, but you're showing that knowledge is embedded all around the world on this issue. And this widens those possibilities again. Okay, I was going to give you an example of World War One, but I think I'm probably going to pause. Because I studied World War. <laughs> <laughs> well, so no, I mean, this is just a, so this is a class I give to our first years. So World War One looms very large in international relations because it's supposed to be sort of the founding moment for the discipline, and the discipline is supposed to be all about war and peace. Um, and the story that we hear about World War One is really all about. Um, the trenches, it's about the breakdown of the balance of power in Europe, and it's about um, nationalism being a key force. Um, but of course, one of the things we don't learn, at least in British schools, is that, again, all of the fighting units were empires constituted by large imperial armies, constituted by battlefields, not just in the Somme and in Verdun, but actually in Mesopotamia and shots fired in Chennai and Qingdao and in southern Africa, where there was a long guerrilla campaign, we don't know any of that. Uh, we don't learn about the roles that the uh, different colonial subjects played in the execution of the war, the numbers of troops involved, but also the labourers and the uh, supporting kind of material efforts. And we don't understand what kinds of um, actions the war interacted with, right? So actually one way of thinking about World War I is about the collapse and decline of the Ottoman Empire and by far the most consequential things that come out of World War I is the remaking of the Middle East, it's the remaking and the parceling up of all of those territories and it's a much expanded set of imperial powers for Britain and France. And here are some Mor Moroccans in Belgium in October 1914, right? Right in the heart of the battle. So we've started to get this public understanding a bit more in the last few years as we've looked at the World War I centenary. But for international relations, if you understand all of that, how do you then reconfigure your theories? How do you reconfigure your approach to thinking about world order? You're much more likely to see it as interconnected. You're much more likely to see the mutual relations of power and resistance and struggle and identity and so on as being central to this. Um, so, you know, Africa doesn't enter international relations at the point of decolonization. It's already well in the, in the, in the 20th century. So that's an example from my field, and I'm going to pause there. So.